This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and I'm very pleased to have Dr. Megan Frankie here with me. She's a professor in the Education Department and in the Urban Schooling Division at UCLA. Megan, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. We're going to be talking across Megan's career, um, and I think a really interesting place to start is I noticed your PhD was in 1990 from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Yes. Which puts you in Madison in the mid and late 80s, which must have been a very exciting time. I mean, it's one of the sort of big historic eras in mathematics education mm-hmm. in the U.S. So I wanted to just start there and uh, ask you about what it was like to be in Madison during that time. So I feel so fortunate to have landed in Madison, and I think that I landed there because as an undergrad at uh, Santa Cruz, my advisor said it's a great place to be. I didn't know very much about it. Uh, but feel so fortunate to have landed there, partly because of the math ed community, but also because I had the opportunity to work with people in educational psychology and to kind of blend what I was learning in educational psychology and education at large with what I was learning in mathematics education. Also at Madison, they're so fortunate to have people who think really hard about issues of equity and social justice. And so it was a place to learn. Mm -hmm. They also had a lot of big projects going on at the time that I was there, right? Tom Romberg had big projects and uh, not to mention Mentioned the work that Elizabeth Fenneman, Tom Carpenter, and Penelope Peterson were doing, but everybody there seemed to be working on these really big projects to try and make sense of teaching and learning and curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so it brought lots of people to Madison, right? Mm-hmm. So both doctoral students who had lots of divergent interests, but also faculty who were working with folks in math ed at the time, right? So there were folks from the Netherlands and folks from Australia and folks from Asian countries all kind of visiting and thinking together about these issues in mathematics education. And I think that I landed there so luckily at this I mean, I still think it's a really great place to be, but at a time where I think there was just lots of synergy and lots Mm -hmm. of ways to be a learner Mm -hmm. uh, as a graduate student. Yeah, so what were some of the things that you worked on while you were there? I mean, I know you were involved in the big AERJ CGI piece, uh, so I know that's part of it, but could you say a little bit about that? So when I first got to Madison, I was working with Penelope Peterson on a number of different studies that were really about classroom practice and about classroom practice and school organization. And um, But at the time that I got there, she was writing the proposal, the original CGI, Cognitively Guided Instruction Proposal with Tom Carpenter and Elizabeth Fenema. So I started that project as a brand new almost graduate student, mm-hmm. right, as a second year, beginning of my second year doctoral student. My first year, I transcribed a lot of interviews. (laughs) So for those folks who are doing transcribing now, no, it pays off. Uh I did it 20 hours a week for the whole year. Wow. And... I learned a lot. Um, but So I started on the CGI project as a second-year doctoral student and worked on that project the entire time I was in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, so from its inception, as we were trying to design what it meant to share knowledge about the development of children's mathematical thinking with teachers, to what does that mean to work with teachers? What do we know about professional development? What do we know about teacher learning that would shape how, how we think about doing that? 
I had the opportunity to not only do that, but also to spend a tremendous amount of time in classrooms. So I got to spend time in Annie Keith and Sue Gaines' classrooms, fabulous first grade teachers. I was in their class three mornings a week, right? Wow. Each of them for an entire year. Yeah. And the amount of learning that you get to do while teachers are innovating and thinking hard about their practice. And I was supposed to be collecting data, which I was, but I was learning so much about the teaching and learning of mathematics, about children's thinking, about mm-hmm. school structures, about all of the things that go into understanding these ideas. And so that project, I grew up with it. Mm -hmm. And I worked on every step of it from the time I was a graduate. I stayed there to do postdoc work with the CGI project. And so for your dissertation at Madison, did you carve off a sort of a piece of that work for yourself? I did. But it was still connected to CGI? Yeah, so I was working with Rich Lair at the time. He was my advisor, and I was in ed psych, not in meth ed. And so I was studying cognitive science, and I was really interested in the knowledge structures of teachers and how the ways in which teachers structure their knowledge matters for their practice. Mm -hmm. And so I use some techniques to try and unpack and understand the ways in which teachers organize their knowledge and what that had to do with the kinds of classroom practices that they were engaged in. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, my dissertation shows that relationship between knowledge organizations, not the knowledge you have, but the way it's organized Mm -hmm. and the kinds of teaching that we Mm -hmm. saw happening. And still in kind of first, second grade elementary Yes, it was all CGI classrooms. I used what we, we knew from that project as a way to base the work that I wanted to do around knowledge organization. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have done my dissertation without the CGI work. Right. So I want to now move ahead as you're uh, leaving Madison, take us kind of to the next point in your career and especially your research kind of agenda. What did you set out for yourself in maybe your first four or five years after graduate school? So uh, I went to UCLA and I went to UCLA as a professor in what's now urban schooling, but I was the only real math ed person there. And I went there purposely because of the really broad and deep knowledge and differences in the faculty, right? So I went there because there was a really strong intellectual community. And so I found myself in book groups with Jeannie Oakes and Pat McDonough and people across fields, Amy Stewart-Wells, right, who do really different work than I do, but we share some similar understandings. And those have really shaped my career. Being at UCLA has changed and deepened my understanding of equity and social justice and Mm -hmm. informed my work around that. When I first started at UCLA, I was still really building on my CGI work, and I was really interested in teacher learning and professional development. And so I jumped in to trying to get to know schools in LA and develop some studies around professional development and how to support teachers. And I did some school-based professional development and really thought about how do we embed professional development in the lives of teachers. and um, have, continuing to want to do that kind of work. At the same time, I was also doing work in our teacher ed program. And we have a teacher ed program that during the time that I was there changed from being a more eclectic program to being a program that was really focused on equity and social justice. Mm. And so I had to think about my math ed work in relation to equity and social justice. What would my math methods class look like in Mm. those circumstances? And we did a number of studies of our teacher ed program in which I participated. So I have this line of work that really tried to think about uh, teacher education. At the same time, I was, uh, as I was doing this professional development work, I got interested in thinking about teacher leadership and school structures and how that played out. And so I have some work that looks at that. 
Um, and then we got engaged in the algebra work. So I never lost my ties, thank goodness, to my Madison folks. Mm-hmm. And we moved on to do studies of our algebraic thinking work. And we did that in Los Angeles, in the lowest performing schools in Los Angeles. And that gave me an opportunity to push more on the things I care about around equity and professional development in conjunction with each other and think about what does that look like and mean for us. And so those studies have then moved me into the work that I'm publishing a lot on right now, which is the relationship between classroom practice and student outcomes. And what do we know about what really matters in classrooms to the kinds of student outcomes that we care about? Mm -hmm. And I know that relates to the handbook chapter you wrote, which I want to ask you about. But before that, I I want to get you to say a little bit more. So you mentioned equity and social justice a few times. Mm -hmm. And I know you specifically look at equity and social justice in urban settings. So I was wondering if there's something else that you wanted to say about maybe what really motivated you to look at the urban setting rather than equity and social justice in general or with other populations. Good question. So there are two different kinds of answers to that. One is that At UCLA, in the Department of Education, we have made a strong commitment, particularly following the Rodney King events in Los Angeles and all of the protests that we sat at the top of this high rise in Westwood, uh, looking over that, thinking, what are we doing? as an education faculty to participate in the lives and communities of the folks in in which we live. And Mm -hmm. so we've made a real strong commitment, I think, in the department to be a part of the Los Angeles community as researchers, as teachers and educators. And so that gets framed as urban education work because we're in a big city. Uh, partly, uh, partly because the lowest performing schools in Los Angeles sit in the most populated areas of the city. Mm -hmm. So you have big, big high schools, right, with 4,000 students sitting in spaces where there's a high school not very far away and another high school not very far away with lots of population, dense Mm -hmm. places where the resources are the family and community resources are both great and challenging. So the the jobless rates and the challenges that come in those places play a role in what happens in schools. And so partly all of those issues around um, make those places urban places for us at UCLA. And partly it's also that as a part of that urban commitment, I have really tried to have Los Angeles and the broader Los Angeles area serve as the site for my work. Mm -hmm. So that means really understanding not just professional development, but what does professional development mean for the lives of the teachers who are working in the schools that are so highly impacted and so seen as problematic? Uh, mm-hmm. And that doesn't look the same, I don't think, in those sites as it does in other kinds of sites. Every site has to think about what does it mean to do professional development in the site. Mm-hmm. So I think it's working in those sites has has changed how I think about my work, but also forced me more and more to think about the equity and social justice parts and what makes urban urban, right? Because there are lots of ways in which urban can also be a proxy for other things, right? Right. And it does happen in Los Angeles. We're urban, right? We also have large populations of low-income students of color, which also contributes. But it's also this density and population issues that happen when you're in so so close proximity to lots and lots of people. Mm. I'm speaking with Megan Frankie from UCLA. So you mentioned that a lot of your work now is really looking at that relationship between classroom practices and student outcomes. Mm -hmm. 
And so that makes me think about your 2007 handbook chapter, which is kind of a seminal piece. Um, and I know there's a new handbook in the works. Uh, mm-hmm. People are busily, you know, trying to get started on chapters. Right. So I wanted to just kind of get your insight on that issue. You dealt in 2007 with teaching mm-hmm. and classroom practices. Right. So I was wondering sort of what you see as some of the main ideas that you raised in that chapter, but also maybe looking ahead to this sort of forthcoming handbook and what you mm-hmm. think the, where we need to kind of push things in the future. So I think in the handbook chapter, Elham and Dan and I were very much trying to situate teaching and learning in a sociocultural perspective. And by that, I mean that we wanted to think of it as a system in which people and their histories and their understandings and their identities shape the interactions that occur. And that without understanding those interactions, it's hard to understand learning and other kinds of outcomes. And so in the handbook chapter, we wanted to both be able to say, research has something to say about the teaching and learning of mathematics. It's not that we don't know anything. We know quite a bit about the teaching and learning of mathematics. And we also know that there are ways in which we need to think beyond the moves that teachers make or the ways in which students respond and think about the ways in which they work together as a community of folks engaged in mathematics together. So we tried specifically in the handbook chapter to make sure that we didn't just address things like discourse and the ways in which discourse shapes learning and classroom practice, but to also think about who's participating in that discourse and why, what are the norms that support that discourse. So it's trying to think about, yes, there are classroom practices we need to think about, but those classroom practices in and of themselves aren't what leads to outcomes. It's the ways in which they get interacted on and about and with with a group of people. And so that's, I think, what I wanted the handbook chapter to say Mm -hmm. and to also say that we can, as a math ed community, take on these issues of equity in lots of different kinds of ways that we are and that we can continue to do that. And it isn't somebody else's problem to worry about. It's ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But to say it in a way that I think fits with the trajectory in which I thought at the time the community was at and what we could hear and work on. Because math ed, from my perspective at that time, and maybe even now, probably now, yes, that there are folks who are doing work around equity and social justice that are doing it in ways that are beyond where we've reached yet in mathematics education. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what I wanted was for folks to have conversation and to provide a mechanism for folks to have a conversation about that. And try to move the whole field forward rather than a few people just kind of taking off (laughs) sort of um, more enlightened than maybe others. That's a good way to say it. Uh, what impact have you seen from the handbook chapter till now? Like, have you seen any of that kind of paying off, or where do you think we sit seven years later? As a part of the Center for Diversity in Math Education, DIME, I had an opportunity to work with an amazing set of people, uh, doctoral students, postdocs, um, faculty who in math ed were thinking hard about these issues of equity and inviting folks who weren't a part of the center who were doing even more work on equity to think also with us about that. And I think that those experiences have helped me see that there are places where we have made progress and there are places where we have a lot of work to do. So I think that we have now a greater number of people who are putting issues of race and culture and 
sexual orientation and all of these issues of diversity central in their work. And not saying, okay, I'm studying classrooms, like I do a little bit, right? I'm studying classrooms and I look at equity, right? That mm -hmm. they look at equity and try and figure out how we understand classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a greater number of folks who are doing that kind of work, which mm -hmm. I think we need. Mm -hmm. I think that we still have quite a few of us in math education who haven't figured out how to have equity play a central role in the day-to-day -day work that we're doing. Yeah. And I think it's hard. I think there's good reasons why we haven't. I think it's hard. Yeah. I think that it's easy to say that that's some, for somebody else to worry about. And what I'm hoping is that as we move forward, more and more of us can figure out how to have equity play a more central role in what we do. Because I think as a group, my math ed colleagues care so much about these issues of equity. Mm -hmm. And so we got to figure out if we all really care about them, how do we make them more central? And I think yeah. some of the dime folks, the, the postdocs and the, and the graduate students have really shown us a way to begin to do that as a field. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of just caught in my own mind because yeah. I struggle with that in my own methods courses. Yes. Um, you know, like we all do. I, because I, I really, at least I profess and I think I truly do care about those issues. But mm -hmm. then when I'm planning my lessons, I'm like, I just catch myself like, wait a minute, I'm kind of leaving it off. I'm doing exactly the thing that I would criticize somebody else for doing. Yes. I'm kind of making it this separate little thing yes. instead of integrating it. Yeah, and it's hard. And it's, so that's what I'm worried about, right? We don't yeah. want people to shut down and not try. Yeah. Because the more we try, the more we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we'll all feel a little bit better about it. But what I'm, I think there are probably more people like us that are saying, okay, I got to do better. I got to do better. Yeah, yeah. Right. And at least the motivation is there yeah. to keep working on it and yeah. figuring it out. So you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of things that you've worked on and a little bit of your trajectory getting up to this point. I want to give you a chance though, to also talk about what you're currently working on. Do you have some data that you're digging into or a project that's underway? Or do you have uh, some kind of future research goals that you're mm -hmm. still aiming toward? So I have a few projects underway and I, they're related. And so I just want to quickly mention them and then talk about one of them. So I'm a part of a group of folks across the country that are trying to think about what is being termed core practice work. And I'm a little worried about that term, but it's about thinking about how to move the learning of teaching closer to practice. And how do we, in our teacher education programs, think about developing a system that allows us as a broad teacher ed community to get better at our practice together? And many people are talking about that, and we kind of talk about it as core practices, as can we think of some high leverage practices that we agree all math teachers um, would benefit from knowing how to do and would mm. leverage future learning. So I'm involved in that work, and um, I'm also now involved in a project with Deborah Steipig around early childhood math. So I'm finding myself in this new arena, which has a lot of questions of equity about the studies that say that if you're four years old and you understand certain things about mathematics, that you're more likely to graduate from high school, you're more mm -hmm. likely to be a better and more proficient reader in high school. Yeah, as you say, we had, I think it was David Perpera was on mm -hmm. the podcast earlier, and he talked about that very early on, there's this link, but it's actually kind of math understanding very early on is predictive of reading success. Mm -hmm. And of course, reading success is very predictive of lots of things. Right. Right. And so I think that those studies have gotten policymakers to pay a lot of attention. 
But I also worry that those studies get us to think that nothing matters except getting four-year-olds to do certain kinds of mathematics. Uh, and I think we need to unpack those a little bit yeah. and recognize that there's a lot of schooling opportunities that happen between when you're four and when you're 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. And that the whole the whole job of preparing children for democracy can't be at the, you know, at the hands of preschool teachers now. And that we can't use that as a way to say we need to do formal mathematics instruction in preschool in the sense that we move now curricula from first and kindergarten into preschool classrooms and we now say we have a half an hour of math every day. And, right, and it just seems like that would be in some ways going backwards for us. And so I'm trying to think about how to leverage the interest in doing more in preschool mathematics with aligning things with the Common Core, helping connect preschool and kindergarten and first grade, helping think about how we can learn from preschool teachers about engaging children and their families, right? So mm -hmm. I want to think differently about that. Mm -hmm. And then the third project is the work that I've been doing with Noreen Webb and a whole group of graduate students and postdocs at UCLA around understanding classroom practice and student outcomes. And they're all related because... We need research around classroom practice and student outcomes in order to think about core practices, in order to think about how to prepare preschool people. I need preschool work to help us think about and push on the boundaries of equity in ways that are important for the classroom practice work and the core practice work, right? Mm -hmm. And so those core practice things that I'm learning are feeding into now what I'm doing with the preschool people and what I'm trying to understand in the classroom practice work. So mm -hmm. they seem very different, but are allowing me to kind of play and integrate these areas in ways that I think are really important for our future learning. Mm -hmm. The work that I think is also pushing on us as a community is this work about the relationship between classroom practice and student outcomes. And in that work, um, Noreen Webb and I, who Noreen does a lot, has her history is in cooperative group work and spent a lot of time trying to understand what was productive about cooperative group work in math and science classrooms. And in the work we were doing in South Los Angeles around algebraic thinking, where the kids, students were doing such amazing work, we found that even though we had engaged all the teachers in professional development and seen that there was a overall effect both at the teacher and student level between teachers who had engaged in this professional development and teachers who hadn't engaged, that there was a lot of variability in what the student outcomes look like. And we wanted to understand what was happening in classrooms that seemed to really matter for children's understanding of these algebraic ideas. Mm -hmm. But we decided in order to do that, we had to hear students. And so we went in and we found ways to, thanks to Fred Erickson and others, to really be able to hear students talk, to watch them as they gestured and showed their representations to each other as well as to the teacher and mm -hmm. how students took up what it was the teacher was asking about. Mm -hmm. And in those studies, we found this very powerful link between students giving explanations and achievement in mathematics. And the links are, even if you account for prior achievement, and that it's not any explanation, it's that uh, students do what Hebert and Grouse talk about as struggling with the mathematics in their handbook chapter, right? That when students work all the way through their mathematical idea in detailed ways, 
they have higher achievement. And it's also we're finding that when children engage with each other's ideas in a detailed way, Mm -hmm. either I engage with your idea or you engage with mine, that there is a relationship to student achievement. And we all have a sense that that's true, and we have some literature to suggest that that research literature, right? We're not the only people doing this kind of work. There's lots of people who've done it. But what we've been able to show is that if you look at a model um, that looks at teacher practice and student outcomes, that there is lots of our assessments now that are evaluating teachers based on their practice and making claims about how effective a teacher they are. Mm -hmm. And in our work, there is a relationship between teacher practice and student outcomes, but that if you put into that model student participation, if you put in there things like students explaining their ideas, engaging with each other's ideas, that that mediates that relationship so that the link between teacher practice and student outcomes isn't direct when you put student participation. Mm -hmm. So as a math educator, I think people would all say, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? That Mm -hmm. teaching isn't an isolated activity. Teaching happens as you engage with students and as they engage with each other. Mm -hmm. And so how students participate in mathematics matters for achievement. But most of what gets done now ignores the student participation piece. Not in math ed, but most of what we do in evaluating teachers. Right, and just the educational, yeah. Right, ignores the student participation piece. And so Mm. what our work is starting, I hope, to say is that, yes, teaching practice is critically important, but teaching practice is mediating by how they engage students. And so as we think about making claims about how effective a teacher is in teaching mathematics, we have to be able to look at the ways in which they're engaging with students and students are engaging with each other's. And this, for me, has huge also equity and social justice ramifications because how you engage students right, is one piece of thinking about these challenges around equity. Not all of it, but one piece of it. And so if we can get move that more into the common discourse around thinking about teaching, that teaching is about participation with students mm-hmm. and context and all of those things, I think the mm-hmm. more we can challenge this traditional notion that I can measure certain things in a teacher's classroom and yeah. make big claims about how good of a math teacher they are. Yeah. My guest is Megan Frankie from UCLA, Um, and so Megan, you've been doing lots of amazing work for quite a while, so I want you to now imagine if you weren't doing any of that, if you weren't involved in math ed at all as a career, what would you see yourself doing instead? I want you to know these are some of my favorite parts of your podcast. Okay, (laughs) great. So I hope you keep asking. I will. Because I really enjoy hearing people talk about that, and I've been thinking about it because I've heard other ones. My first response to that always is, I think I want a job that's a nine-to-five job, right? Where I'm outside (laughs) and I can, at the end of the day, be done with work. But I know that's not really true. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, truthfully, if I weren't doing math ed, I would want to be in a job that was at a national park, in some outdoor capacity as somebody who was working in forestry or working to try and support and create and maintain the amazing amazing wilderness that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel really passionate about it, and I really love being outside, and I think that would... I'm sure there are parts of that job that really are not great, mm-hmm. but in my head, <laughs> that's just like this most amazing job. 
Yeah, so do you travel to parks a lot? I know California I has some beautiful ones, but have you, what are some of your favorites? So when I was an undergrad at Santa Cruz, that funky Santa Cruz place, uh-huh. I got to spend a semester in living in Yosemite and backpacking oh, wow. through Yosemite and taking classes. But the classes were all embedded in the yeah. day-to-day work that you were doing. So I uh-huh. have this deep appreciation and fondness for Yosemite. I really want to spend more time in the Canadian Rockies. Um, and to kind of move my my way into some some of the other, mm-hmm. I've been to a lot of national parks. I spend a lot of time out in the woods, well, not as much as I want, but I haven't spent very much time in the Canadian Rockies. I think that would be pretty awesome. Yeah, not to bring it back to math ed, but I'm going to bring it back to math ed. Uh, you're mentioning the coursework where you're actually the course is embedded in these very experiential. You're sleeping there, yes. you're backpacking. Yeah. I was thinking about you know in mathematics. We have the luxury that we can actually have students backpack through mathematics in a classroom. They can yes. stay in a classroom and still get that full experiential, yes. um, you know, going through a problem or a proof or critiquing somebody else's reasoning or having that discussion. So it's really kind of a luxury that we have a subject where you can actually bring the subject fully into that classroom for this full experience. Isn't that interesting? But we just don't always take advantage of it, I think. No, or we, even think about it that way. Yeah, we end up, I think, still having our math classroom look kind of like the stingy, you know, learning about outdoors, but you're mm-hmm. sitting in a, with a desk and a book and you're learning about the outdoors. I think that's kind of how we teach math yeah. quite often, where you're sitting at a desk with a book and you're being taught math rather than having that full body experience. So. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I've been watching one of my students who's very interested in patterns and algebraic reasoning and watching him bring real-life examples of the kinds of patterns you would see in the outside world into classrooms and help having kids reason about those kinds of patterns and patterning in thinking about, hmm, what would that look like if I were to draw a representation of that and use some kind mm-hmm. of mathematical model to do that? And yeah. it's just really fun to watch how intrigued students get by yeah. those ideas. Yeah, I think mathematics can help them kind of do the exploration of the mind or, mm-hmm. or of each other, you know, as a community, mm-hmm. having those good arguments and mm-hmm. reasoning through things could be really powerful. But mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your work. My it's been pleasure. Great. It's been great to do it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.